This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. In the news this episode, the Boeing Deferred Prosecution Agreement, T-7 Jet Trainer Quality Issues, Attempted Diversions of LL Flights, Grants for Airport Infrastructure Improvements, the effects of the V-22 Osprey grounding, and airline trading cards. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 787 of the show where we talk aviation. And of course, because it's episode 787, we are not going to talk about the Dreamliner. Uh, we had designs. We had several plans to uh, kind of dedicate this episode to that aircraft, but uh, they they didn't materialize, unfortunately. Um, so uh, we're we're sorry for that. But I'm Max Flight, and uh, joining me is uh, first our main man, Micah. Hey, Max. Thanks for having me along again. It's great to be here and uh, looking forward to a fun show. Yes, and also with us is our aviation historian, David Vanderhoof from the American Helicopter Museum. Uh, well, I, I guess I guess there was a quality issue um, for another Boeing product. That's why we're not talking about 787. No, no. Oh, also expected to join us uh, shortly is Rob Mark. He's a BizJet pilot journalist, and he's publisher of JetWine.com. He's going to be joining us a little bit late. Uh, as for Max Trescott, host of Aviation News Talk podcast, he's off this week. Uh, he is, uh, well, he's flying here. He's ferrying a vision jet, uh, something like that. I, I can't remember, but he's in the middle of a trip and so unable to join us this week. So we're going to jump right in with the aviation news from the past week. Are you two guys uh, ready? I'm mainly ready. Ready. First comes from defensenews.com. Boeing pushes back T7 plans due to faulty parts. Boy. Each week, I hope we can not talk about an issue with Boeing, but it just doesn't seem to be happening. So here what we see is uh, low-rate initial production, or LRIP, of the T-7A Red Hawk training jet has been pushed out, pushed out to mid-2024. Boeing said part quality problems are to blame, along with supply chain issues. Uh, David, the, the T-7, that is to replace the T-38 jet trainers, is that correct? Yes. It will be the primary jet trainer for the United States Air Force. The capability of the T-7, though, is it will, it will provide a better training position for fourth, I mean, for fifth and sixth generation aircraft like F-35s and F-22s. Um, and the, let's face it, the T-38 is a bit long in the tooth. It, it is a 50s technology aircraft, even though it's probably the greatest trainer ever made, um, it, it is old and they're running out of spares and, and we need a 21st century trainer, which is supposedly the T-7, but evidently the T-7 is having 21st century problems like much of supplies these days. It is. And, and there's a lot of airplanes at stake here, right? I think the Air Force plans to buy, I think it says 351 T sevens by twenty thirty four, and it's a big contract. Boeing that Boeing won in twenty eighteen, a nine point two billion contract to build this fleet, uh, as as well as provide uh, other support services, including simulators and all. Yeah, I mean it's a complete package. Boeing is providing the simulators as well as the actual aircraft. Now, if it's any indication, you know, this aircraft could become a trainer for the modern world for um, at least NATO allies, etc. Um, but you got to get it off the ground. And it, it's it's unfortunate Boeing, this is the McDonnell Douglas plant. This is St. Louis. Um, and it's having the same problems that um, the Seattle issue is. And this is the military division. So quality issues are now it, it's it's 
systemic. Boeing has a real problem across the board, and I don't know how they're going to fix it, especially when it's affecting now their military contracts and their civilian contracts. Yeah, yeah, the double whammy. Once again, Boeing has overpromised and underperformed, and uh, and it's a major parts issue that's going on, uh, or as it's being reported, that there are problems with parts. The specific parts haven't been uh, uh, explained in terms of, in the article, it says that they haven't been detailed, but uh, it's their parts of varying sizes from several different suppliers. And uh, Boeing had to send them back to original manufacturers for repairs. And uh, so we're hoping that it's going to get fixed at some point. Yeah, of course we do. Absolutely. And uh, it's really <laughs> unfortunate um, to be another uh, another newsmaker for for Boeing, uh, we have another military story. This is uh, from uh, TWZ.com uh, about the Army CH-47s. Now, uh, we we know, of course, that the V-22 tilt rotors were grounded, and that after the fatal crash of an Air Force uh, aircraft off the coast of Japan last November, November 2023. And uh, the tilt rotors in the United States are used by the Air Force and Navy and the Marine Corps, different versions of them. But, uh, Micah, other other aircraft are being pressed into service to fill the role of the tilt rotors. Yeah, they're... uh Again, this it ends up being a, a Boeing problem, Boeing Bell, because the V-22s have been grounded, and those are now considered Boeing products as far as I know. I don't think I – I think I have that correct, but uh, – They're considered Bell products. Bell is the primary contractor. Oh, well, that's good to know. Thank you very much, David. Um, but uh, the ones that were working for the president are no longer allowed to fly, and so instead of being Marine MV-22s, it's going to be Army CH-47s taking over the role uh, for the uh, for the presidential transport unit. David, how do they use the uh, you know the tilt rotors, the V-22s, in, in that uh, role as uh, support for the president? The MV-22s are literally the support aircraft. Um, the president will not fly on them, but they do carry the additional Secret Service agents, the press, the media um, to support the VH3, VH3Ds, uh, which is the official, which everyone will know lands on the front lawn and of the White House and, and is recognized as uh, Marine One. Normally, you have two to three VH3s flying the, the president. Um, they, and we, we can get into the shell game if at some point. If somebody has anything, they can send me an email and I'll explain what the shell game is. But the rest of the aircraft are supported. Um, now, originally, um, they were supported by um, CH-46s and that would, they are no longer available. Um, so the Marines have the option of using... CH-53Es, which is the large sea stallion, and then, or in this case, they're using Army um, 47s to support it. Uh, now, again, this is a stopgap. Originally, the next intention is the um, VH-92, which is the, the new helicopter that will be Marine One, and that will that helicopter will eliminate um, the MV-22s, and it will be a complete fleet of those. Um, so it will be li- limiting the VH3s, the VH60s, and the V22s. Um, but that hasn't, they haven't flown the president yet, and they're still not fully operational. So um, this is a major setback for HMX1 um, as far as capabilities go. So pulling other assets like CH47s, which have a larger lift capacity than the V22s. But, you know, we're, we're going back to um, splitting the services, splitting up the duties again, which we haven't had since 1974. Because there was a time when uh, the uh, the helicopter transport was done by the Marines and the Army. And there was a time, wasn't it, when the, the president would fly sometimes on Army one? That in 1974, it was changed to strictly the Marines. Originally, it was the very first flight was done by the Air Force. And then it was um, the Marines and the Army flew the missions um, up and through uh, 1974, where the mission was given strictly to the Marines. The Army opted out of it. 
So the Air Force was fixed wing and the Marines was rotary wing. And David, I was going to ask you another question in regards to this that uh, I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, but I'm wondering how uh, COD, Carrier Onboard Delivery, is is being performed because that was going to be taken over by the MV-22, and now that it's not available, how are they handling that? We have the, well, we've had eight carriers out at one point. The CVM, CMV-22B, which is the Carrier Onboard Delivery version that the Navy purchased, um, is also grounded by this this national grounding. So at this point, they have to supplement them with um, MH60s, uh, Nighthawks, the S's, or they can use um, MH53s, uh, E's. And now, if this prolonged thing where they don't have the capability of um, getting the MV, CVMV-222s up and running, we still have um, some COD C2 aircraft available. Um, they haven't been completely disbanded yet. So you never know. Um, it wouldn't be the first time Grumman restarted the C2 production line because Grumman is still producing E2s. Um, so it would be basically just bringing back the tooling for the C2 as a replacement. Or um, it might be something like the CH-53K, the King Stallion, which is coming online. But that would be another three to four years before that would be available. So the 22 issue is going to be pervasive to all the services, um, including the Army, because it's going to affect Army capabilities if they're having to supplement uh, Marine Corps, which is the Marine Corps medium lift. Every medium lift helicopter squadron now is is actually a tilt rotor squadron, and that is usually the primary squadron out on amphibious assault ships. All of the other squadrons, the um, Hueys and the Cobras and the um, heavy lift helicopters become part of the medium lift squadron. So that's always the head squadron on an amphibious assault vehicle. So... Uh, we'll see. I mean, if you've if you've been st- watching the Middle East, I mean, we've been doing normal replenishment via H-60s and in the Red Sea, et cetera, to the aircraft carriers. So I, I don't know what COD's going to happen, but clearly um, the CMV-22 is probably not going to go in into service as quick as possible. And what is in service right now is grounded. So after all is said and done, do we still end up with green tops and white tops? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, the, the the green top and the white top, the white top is officially the helicopters that fly the president of the United States. The green tops were the ones that were flying the support missions. That's, that's the HMX logo for the two of them. Um, with the coming of the VH-92, I don't know if we're going to have green tops anymore, but probably they will have aircraft that will be just completely green and not um, green and white. Hmm. All right. Lots going on there. All right. Let's let's um, let's see. Let's talk a little bit of uh, commercial, uh, commercial aviation, uh, Israel in particular. Um, there's a... Uh, Article in uh, jpost.com. That must be the Jerusalem Post, I I assume. Yeah. Israel flight from Thailand faced attack by, quote, hostile elements in this report. So, uh, Micah, this is a little concerning. I guess this is uh, something that's happened a couple of times over the course of a week. Yeah, last uh, last episode we talked about how there's been some GPS spoofing, and this is uh, a little more old-fashioned, but uh, this was radio spoofing. Uh, it's happened a few times, but the one that was reported in the Jerusalem Post was a flight from uh, uh, Phuket, Thailand, to uh, to Israel, to Tel Aviv, and while it was uh, over Somalia, there were some com- communication interruptions, uh, giving the pilots some uh, false information in terms of where to turn and where to go. The pilot realized that something was up and they were able to uh, to figure out that it was a scam and, and changed uh, over to some other communication techniques uh, to find out what was going on. And they weren't fooled by it. But uh, apparently this is something that seems to be happening regular over uh, in the Somalia area. And, and this transmission took place from uh, sort of a subdivision of Somalia. I'm not 100 percent familiar with it, but it's called uh, Somaliland or Somaliland. 
I guess it's a good thing the uh, the, the pilots are well trained for this kind of eventuality. I, I don't know if uh, that kind of training and preparedness for a situation like this is widespread throughout the world or not. If if it's not, then you know there's maybe kind of a vulnerability that you know we should keep our eye on. But yeah, like you say, Micah. And I mean another example of uh, you know how a malicious actor can attempt to alter the uh, the events of a of a flight whether it's commercial or military or you know what have you it's kind of a little scary it really is and you know we are uh, uh war is uh, is taking place in in different ways these days and what we uh, are generally used to although this kind of thing happened uh, quite a bit during world war 2 as well you know we, people would ask uh about certain baseball players or what actress was married to what actor, et cetera, and so on to try to figure it all out. But all that information is, is far more easily available now than it once was. So, uh, fortunately, uh, nothing happened, but, uh, the report is disturbing. Yeah, it is for sure. All right. Um, next up, uh, this is from uh, the Department of Transportation. Title is Biden-Harris administration announces nearly $1 billion in grants from the bipartisan infrastructure law to improve 114 airports across the U.S. Um, there's, there's some really interesting information in this, in this piece and in some of the other uh, DOT and particularly FAA uh, websites. But the bipartisan infrastructure law allocates $5 billion dollars that being $1 billion annually from 2022 to 2026, uh, billion dollars annually to provide competitive grants for airport terminal development projects. And as this article shows in uh, fiscal year 2024, the FAA is awarding $970 million to 114 airports in 44 states and three territories. One of the things I, I really enjoyed it in this piece, and we'll have a link to this in the show notes, of course, is that the FAA has an excellent data visualization tool for the airports receiving funding. So essentially, you've got a graphic of the United States, and uh, with with all of these airports shown, the you know the three letter designations, and if you hover over one of the airports, whichever one you select up pops a window where you can see the amount of funding for that airport as well as the details about how that money will be used. And there are a number of different categories that you can filter by, um, these being the uh, the kinds of infrastructure improvements that they're hoping to achieve. And the ones you can filter, uh, filter by include uh, better passenger experience, that's one. Expanded capacity is another. Also, sustainability, uh, safety improvements, accessibility, uh, serving smaller communities, and tower upgrades. Uh, so it's just fascinating to look around at different airports and see you know, what's the plan for you know your home airport uh, in in terms of the uh, you know the funding and the plan for spending it um, at that airport. Uh, Micah, you have some comments about that. One of the airports, I think, that are included in this. Well, a couple of them. The way that I, I found I found the story and the way that I found it is because there was a local report that uh, my local airport, the Portland Jetport, is getting $10.4 million out of, uh, out of this, this money that's being spent, which is great. They're going to be putting in new uh, passenger boarding bridges. They're going to be fixing extensions for some of the bridges that are already there. There's going to be uh, new, new restrooms, uh, pet relief areas, uh, diaper areas, uh, new seating around that. I mean, all sorts of great stuff. I mean, it's stuff that I really want to talk to, uh, to to Paul about. I'm looking forward to seeing it in action. But then I also saw that uh, the Presque Isle International Airport is getting $6.5 million uh, to build a new terminal superstructure uh, and, and a building enclosure and become an ADA compliant, which is all great stuff. But what fascinated me about this is that Presque Isle is an essential air service airport. They have two flights a day. You can fly to and from Newark Airport from Presque Isle. Now, for those who may not be familiar with the geography in the state of Maine, Presque Isle is about 300 miles north of Portland. It's a five-hour drive. If I drive the same distance south, I'm going to be in New York City. 
the only place you can fly to from Presque Isle is New York City to Newark. If you want to get to Portland, you have to fly from Presque Isle. You have to fly to Newark and then fly from Newark to Portland. <laughs> yeah. But it's an essential air service airport. They receive, oh, I can't remember. I think it's, I can't remember how many millions of dollars a year in order to subsidize this service from GoJets. Um, and that service, that, that ESA essential air service is about to expire in May. So of it may year. be renewed of this year, May of 2024. Hmm. So it may be renewed. It may not be renewed. The odds are it will be because one of our senator who's lives up there and her family's up there. And that's the general feeling within Maine as to how it got this service to begin with. Um, but they're spending six and a half million dollars to improve facilities that may or may not be needed. Um, so it just kind of fascinated me. Uh, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's an interesting thing. It's the kind of thing you need to look at. Yeah. It kind of, kind of begs the question, uh, I guess, uh, what process was used to determine where the funding was going to go and for, and for what purposes? I, I, and I'm not sure I know how that was all determined. And I'm fascinated by the essential air service in general because Maine has four ESA airports. Uh, there's Presque Isle, which kind of makes sense to me because you're two and a half hours from Bangor up in Presque Isle. That's the closest airport. But then there's Rockland, there's Augusta, and there's Bar Harbor. Now, Augusta is less than an hour from the Portland Jetport. Hmm. And it seems to me that an hour commute to an airport isn't that big a deal. Not unusual. Um, Bar Harbor is an hour from the Bangor Airport. Again, seems to me, I mean, it's a big tourist area. They only have two or three flights a day to Boston. And it's the same thing with Augusta. And then there's Rockland, which 63 miles from the Bangor Airport, but it's a 90-minute drive because it's only a two-lane road. So I can kind of see that. It's also another big tourist area. But I'm really, I'm curious about how essential air service is determined in some of these locations. Is it all political? Is it truly essential? I, I wish we could find someone to talk with us about that because I think it's a fascinating and important program, but I'm curious where the money is being spent. I think uh, uh, Brent, our, our buddy Cranky, writes about this regularly. Maybe we can, we haven't had him on in a while. Maybe we can, he might want to do a show with us about that, or, or maybe there's someone else, but I, I would love to find somebody to talk about essential air service because it is critical to the environment and to transportation around the United States. Yeah. Good topic. Okay, good. We'll, uh, we'll explore the possibilities there. Uh, at the beginning of this uh, story, I mentioned that uh, the, uh, under this uh, infrastructure law that uh, airport terminals are, receiving $5 billion uh, over that time period. But uh, just it's worth mentioning that there are other, um, other areas where uh, money's allocated for aviation. In fact, two other areas. One is airport infrastructure. So that's uh, beyond just to terminals. And uh, there's $15 billion uh, in the law for that. And then the, the third, uh, third area is air traffic facilities. And there's a billion dollars set aside for for that. And as I mentioned, you can uh, see the show notes for the FAA website that has a lot of really good information about these. It's presented very well. Uh, the website is is actually it's www.faa.gov/bil. And again, we'll have that in the uh, in the show notes. You do need the W's. <laughs> if you just try to go to FAA.gov, it doesn't work. The W's are required, so don't forget those. And who was it that said, you know, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there? Soon you're talking about real money. I know, I know. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's see. Let's look at uh, another uh, commercial aviation story. This is about uh, a Delta and uh, I love this. Story. This I, I do too. This is a great story. Uh, this is titled uh, "Delta has been keeping a secret for the past twenty years," and pilots really want to ask or want you to ask about it. Well, unbeknownst to many passengers, Delta Airlines has had a trading card program since two thousand three. How come I'd, I'd never heard of it? 
How come I don't have a Captain Jeff trading card is what I want to know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, a, a Captain Dana trading card. I just, it's just not right. Are these Who guys hoarding these cards? the cards or, yeah. you know, or what's going on here? I mean, so the, the cards are exclusive to pilots. Uh, they feature uh, images of the aircraft uh, that they fly. Uh, they are changed periodically. In fact, every five years, there's new artwork uh, that's introduced on these cards. The pilots vote on uh, the new artwork to be introduced. But I guess this story sort of recently broke on social media, and now everybody wants the cards. But it's been big. It, it, the, according to the article, in 2023, Delta handed out over 1.5 million cards. Where are all... So anyway, everybody's asking for the cards. You have to ask the pilots. You have to ask them nicely. And there's no guarantee that they actually have any with them. But I thought that was really interesting. I can see how people would just go nuts for these cards. You know, every time I fly, and Brian does the same thing, we always, you know, give out a little gift to the flight attendants, and we try to get on the flight deck and give out a gift to the pilots as well. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's great. I think the last time I uh, was flying United, I, I the pilot happened to have a business card and handed me his business card after I, you know, gave him some Ferrara Rochers, which was just really nice. But wouldn't it have been so cool if I got a, a trading card? I mean, that just would have been great. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you got to collect all of it. This, this seems like a really good idea to me. But Delta, we should be clear, Delta isn't the only one that's uh, either has done or is doing something like this. Frontier Airlines actually has trading cards, uh, pictures of uh, in, endangered animals and species that are threatened. Uh, I think those come from the flight attendants. And I think like the like the Delta cards, they're free cards. There's no, there's no charge for them. So uh, Frontier passengers might uh, talk to their flight attendants to see if there's a, a free card that they can uh, obtain during their flight. You know, I've, I've got to say something that listeners of a certain age will understand and remember and probably laugh from. And so that is, collect them, trade them with your friends, be the first in your block to have them all. Yes, yes. Oh, God, I remember those days. Um, United Airlines had uh, previously done something like this, some limited edition trading cards. They did that last year in June, 2023. Uh, and they did that to celebrate 1 million followers on Instagram. But these were really limited. Only 100 packs were given out. So, I mean, those would be highly desirable collectibles, I would think. But um, Fortune reports that United is kind of hinting around that they might introduce some similar cards. Do any of you guys remember flying and getting actually metal pin wings, you know, yes. for being a, a junior flyer? I remember getting those. That was uh, that was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, now they have plastic wings and they're nowhere near the same. But these were real metal. They, they looked very official wings that they would give out to kids that were flying. My late father used to, uh, when we were kids, bring bring them home for us. And that was always a real thrill because like you say yeah metal and sort of substantial feeling and uh, you did feel just like you had the same wings that the pilot had and that was a big deal it really was all right i think we have one more story i think this is the last one uh, this is uh, will biden rescind trump's boeing immunity deal now uh, you, you'll recall that after the two 737 max crashes the previous administration negotiated a deferred prosecution agreement, it's called, whereby Boeing was granted certain immunity from prosecution, including fraud charges, and also protection for Boeing's senior executives. And over time, a number of people have criticized that deal and are not happy with it. Well, this article comes from something called The Lever. Now, it's on levernews.com. Now, I'd never heard of The Lever. Uh, but the lever is, in their own words, is, quote, a nonpartisan, reader-supported, investigative news outlet that holds accountable the people and corporations manipulating the levers of power. So, okay, there's a bit of an agenda there. Um, so just, you know, with, with that in mind. Uh, but what's happening here is that that deferred prosecution agreement contains some interesting language. 
it required that Boeing, quote, protect and detect violations of the U.S. fraud laws throughout its operations, including, here's the important part coming up, those of its contractors and subcontractors. Interesting. That's something that Boeing agreed to, protect and detect violations. Also, the uh, the Justice Department had, quote, sole discretion, unquote, to decide if, quote, the company has breached the agreement and whether to pursue prosecution of the company and its subsidiaries. All right, so all that's kind of background. So what's changed? Why does the lever propose that there may be an opportunity to rescind this immunity deal? And let's say one more thing that's reported in the story that I think is important if if we're going to believe this article, you know, but it says that the entire agreement that we're talking about was announced or put together just days before the last administration left office. Yeah, it was kind of a which last I think year. is important to to note. So, so what has changed? Well, now we go to the Alaska Airlines door plug blowout, and how does that relate to this deferred prosecution agreement for seven three seven Max crashes? Well, there's a lawsuit that's been filed after this door plug blowout from Alaska, the Alaska Airlines seven three seven Max. And the lawsuit alleges that Spirit Aerosystems, who we know manufactures the door plug along with some other uh, aero structures, that Spirit Aerosystems had engaged in a, quote, fraudulent scheme, unquote, to falsify records and hide excessive numbers of manufacturing defects. So the theory here (laughs) is that and I'm not saying one way or other that, you know, I'm not judging it, but the theory is that if, if the fraud allegations are substantiated in this lawsuit over the door plug blowout, then that the Justice Department could rescind the deferred prosecution agreement. Why? Because uh, Boeing did not, quote, protect and detect violations of U.S. fraud laws. So, uh, you know, very... Very interesting. It, 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 it's a theory. It, I, I think it's a theory. Yeah, it, um, it's, it's a fascinating article. And they also talk about the, the source, the informed source that we spoke about that was published in the Seattle Times in the last episode. I think they're referring to him or her uh, that hasn't been named yet, saying that Boeing was well aware of this. And, uh, and it, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes if it goes anywhere, it's still all very speculative. And, uh, you know, I wish Aaron Applebaum was here with us this evening. I think she would be a great person to, to ask more about this. I think that's the second time in the last two episodes, maybe three, that her name has come up as, as, uh, uh, probably having something very interesting to say about these, these stories. Well, it seems you can't talk about Boeing without talking about prosecution of some sort and, and attorneys. So, you know, it, but yeah, it's uh, fascinating story, I think. It is. And of course, a link uh, to the story as well as all the stories that uh, we talk about are in the show notes. We have a, if you haven't visited the show notes, there's a, a brief description of each story and of course a link to the story. And if there's other um, well, kind of supporting information relating to the story, we put links uh, or the information directly in the show notes as well. For example, on the um, infrastructure law, where we're talking about uh, spending for improvements for airport terminals, and we talked about airport infrastructure and air traffic facilities as well, but not part of this, you know, the article per se. Uh, we have links to those um, to those uh, those topics as well. So there's a lot to be found in the show notes. So I hope you'll uh, you know visit them from time to time. Well, on July 20th, 2023, the California Science Center started its, what they call, Go for Stack. This is the process of moving and lifting each of the components of the Space Shuttle Endeavor 
into place for an upcoming display at the museum. This is a 20-story vertical display of the Endeavour. And there, there has never apparently been a stacking of a space shuttle like this outside of a NASA facility. First time. So the museum has been working on this, planning this for a long time. And we just recently saw this uh, vertical stacking of the Endeavour itself. And our uh, friend Brian Coleman was there, and he brings us a couple of interviews he did. So we'll play those now. The first one is with Ken Phillips. He's the curator for aerospace science at the California Science Center. And Ken develops the center's foundation programs and exhibits on aeronautics and space exploration. So here's Brian and Ken. We're here with Ken Phillips, the aerospace curator at the California Science Center. Ken, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Great to be here. (laughs) Absolutely. So this is sort of our third meeting or third major event, right? The yes. solid rocket boosters were put in, right. then the external fuel tank. Now yeah. today, the orbiter is going to be installed yeah. at the... Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center. Yeah, so really exciting day. It is an exciting day. I mean, this is kind of a milestone event in the project because unlike most exhibits that are put into waiting buildings, we're creating one of the major exhibition pieces and building the building at the same time. So it's a real Tetris problem. It's a big coordination effort. So this is a significant day because now, assuming that this goes well, all right, and we have favorable winds, which so far we do, right. we will mate the orbiter, Endeavour, to the waiting uh, external tank and the solid rocket boosters, and we'll complete this phase of the, phase of the project. Put scaffolding around it, sheathe the scaffolding with plywood for further protection, and then just button up this whole part of the project, and then move on to some other things that we think are going to be be very interesting for people. As and well. that's actually what all this scaffolding is for. It's actually going to be protecting the solid rocket booster, the external fuel tank, and eventually the orbiter before right. they continue construction around right. that, correct? That's correct. And that scaffolding is likely not to be removed until well near the very end of the project. Meaning once the building is complete, all the construction crews are out, and the builder, Matt Construction, turns the building over to the California Science Center, or formally, becomes ours, as it were, then we can begin to disassemble that. Because what remains to be done is primarily in other galleries. Because there are three galleries, air, which is aeronautics, space, which is everything other than shuttle, and shuttle is its own exclusive gallery. You can see by the architecture here that it occupies its own space. Yeah, and it's really an amazing building. So it's fun being on the second story right now with part of the third story built, but yet an awful lot more still needs to be done. An awful lot more. And it's a difficult building to describe. It's not like a cube that has uh, traditional floors, you know, cutouts or not. The gallery is designed really to optimize the display of the things that we want people to understand and learn about. Right. So the aeronautics gallery is wide. It operates on three levels. The bottom level will be an area that we call general flight. The gallery that we're on here right now, the second gallery, since this is the entry gallery, um, will actually have an area called taking wing. And there'll be some of the older aircraft, wooden fabric planes, things that actually helped us learn to control a vehicle in the air. Right. And can you talk about any of the aircraft that are going to be here on display? We're in the process of restoring a classic DC-3 airplane. DC-3 is significant because it was the first commercially successful aircraft ever to fly. And that ushered in some of the infrastructure that made places safe to land and service planes. Commercial enterprises uh, obviously sprung up from that over the years. Other aircraft that we are, are going to have on display, jet airplanes, they have special features, especially if they're military, primarily speed, also agility, and to some extent, observability. In other words, are they stealthy or not? We'll be doing an awful lot, do, doing an awful lot with, with, with drones and how they're controlled. Not just how one controls them, but how autonomous they have become. Right. Because they do a lot of thinking and sensing and computer processing on their own now. It's really an amazing thing to see. So that's the aeronautics gallery. If you look at the space galleries, there are three ways to, to basically explore the universe. You can go with spacecraft that humans pilot, like the space shuttle. You'll have several spacecraft on loan from 
the Smithsonian Institution, National Air and Space. These are flown Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo uh, spacecraft. Very excited to have them in the collection. And then there are all the things that have to do with the solar system, deep space uh, observations, um, missions to Mars. So we're looking forward to working with JPL, and we'll have representative of the Mars 2020 rover, which is now caching samples to be returned to us by the next generation Mars lander. That's all robotic. And it's very exciting because the solar system is so diverse. There's so many things that we can uh, look at, questions that we can ask. The moons of the outer solar system, just tremendous opportunity to learn about, you know, oceans beneath uh, Enceladus and stuff like that. It's crazy stuff. We'll be displaying some of the vehicles. Many are in early design stages that will help us explore the solar system and, and, and learn more about it um, you know, as we move along. And one of the neat things about the California Science Center is the hands-on exhibits that they have here. Is this aviation gallery going to be full of those as well, or is this really going to be a bunch of static displays? Anything but the static displays. In fact, the entire (laughs) Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center is built around a series of education messages that have to do with the basic science and engineering that make all this stuff possible. And those messages are basically addressed, or fundamentally addressed, I should say, by the interactive experiences that we'll have. So some of those are experiences that have to do with basic science principles. And there are about a dozen or so that pretty much cover the entire landscape of of aerospace science. Of course, there's the engineering aspect, which has to do with design. Why do some planes have very long, slender wings? Well, because they're gliders. And why do other planes have swept wings? And why are they propelled by uh, jet engines, air-breathing engines? So... All those design opportunities are things that our guests will have a chance to to sort of play around with. And the idea for the collection is to inspire those designs and to inspire that that thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like the mission of the California Science Center really fits in with the mission of our podcast, which is to educate and inspire people. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, our philosophy is that I think that, that a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about is complicated, but it's by no means beyond anybody who's interested in learning about it. I think the idea is to come here and create what I call epiphany experiences. So somebody comes in, they have a passing interest in something, uh, but they're a little bit intimidated about it. Hopefully, if we're right about our exhibit designs and the combination of those interactive exhibits with the suspended artifacts, they'll begin to realize they understand a lot more than they thought they did, that this stuff is a lot more accessible. So if it does appeal to them, then why not go for it? Right. Know, take that extra math, math class. Don't, don't, don't shy away from, from that science course that, that you thought you couldn't handle because you put your mind to it and you can. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's kind of unfortunate that it's going to take so long to complete the building, right? There's still a few more years' worth of work to be done here to get it open to the public. But once it's open, yeah. this really is going to be an amazing facility. That's true. And there are, um, you know, a lot of the artifacts that you may have remembered seeing had you been here at the Science Center earlier mm-hmm. are still going to be on display in a special gallery that we're creating, which is a preview for the new Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center. Okay. It'll sort of tease you a little bit about let you know what some of the future, future exhibits and, and major artifacts are. Some of those I, I can't quite talk about yet because the donation agreements are not in place. Sure. But um, they will involve rockets, propulsion and engine clusters, which will be really interesting to see. Even some uh, human-piloted uh, spacecraft, which we're very excited to have in the collection. And uh, all these things are collected like teasers for what you can see, but even on a bigger scale when we open uh, Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center. Yeah, that's great. Again, I think they might be getting ready to move the orbiter, so we're going to close up this interview and Absolutely. give you the opportunity to, yeah. to see it because that's what we're here yeah. for. Don't want to miss that. <laughs> thank you so much yeah, for being you. on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Next up, Brian spoke with Jeff Rudolph. He's the president and CEO of the California Science Center, which, by the way, is in Los Angeles, California. Uh, Jeff is also the president of the California Science Center Foundation. And here they are. And I am back here again with Jeff Rudolph, the president and CEO of the California Science Center. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And we are here at the repositioning of Endeavor, going inside of the building or the shell of the building. It's really a very exciting day. 
It really is. Um, this is sort of the big moment where we're attaching Endeavor to the rest of the shuttle stack, and uh, hopefully that'll get done tonight. Yeah, and the, well, the weather seems to be perfect. The rain gods decided not to precipitate on us, and right. yeah. Yeah, and, and even more important than the rain is that there's not a lot of wind. It's really a nice, calm evening, and right. um, so far all is good. Just uh, hope, hope everything continues to go well and we get it in place. So and as far as the day's events go, they're going to move it into place, get it all attached up, mounted, shrouded in scaffolding, protect it, have the rest of the building be built around it, just with small minor things. Well, yeah, just a few few months worth of work. <laughs> what else is going on at the Science Center that you could talk about? Well, a lot is going on. Just with respect to the Air and Space Center alone, we're continuing to work on um, restoring um, artifacts. We've got 100 other aircraft and spacecraft coming into this building, mm-hmm. and some of those still need restoration. That's going on. We're working on the design and finishing off the development of the exhibits, about 100 exhibits, hands-on exhibits, interpretive exhibits about what you're seeing in the Air and Space Center and how things work. So that's all going on while the building is finished. Uh, And we've got a lot of other great things going on at the Science Center right now. We are about to open an exhibit, Leonardo da Vinci uh, exhibit that will open in March. Really nice exhibit. And focusing on flight or science? uh, Really on, on mostly of science and engineering. Right, um, okay. And it's recreated models of many of his inventions, which I, I, you probably know he didn't actually build himself, but he drew these elaborate drawings of how to make things. And um, this, the mm-hmm. folks in Italy that have been studying him for years and, and monitoring him are, have actually built models from his drawings that are beautiful. Right. And uh, look at his, his genius. Here at the Science Center, there's so much more, like the world of ecology and the aquarium that's here. Our our ecosystem exhibit continues to be a great attraction. The kelp forest is doing really well, our aquarium. Uh, We're redoing our world of life exhibit. The the life gallery is in the middle of redesign as well. Uh, We're building a very large science and sports exhibit that will actually go in the building really? Endeavor was in, the temporary building, and that will open up uh, next year in 2025 and keep it through the Olympics. So that building's staying in place? For the interim, um, okay. at, least, at least through the Olympics. It's a great building to do a sports exhibit. It's huge open space. It's tall and uh, gives us a lot of room to actually have activities and do sports and learn about the science involved. Uh, so that'll be there through the Olympics. And then the long term, after that, uh, we will take that building down and be building our Southeast Asian tropical rainforest there. Oh, wow. That'll be really nice. <laughs> that'll be the last big piece of our ecosystem exhibit to go with our kelp forest and talk about biodiversity. Okay. Yeah, so you definitely have some. We have really years exciting, of work to do and, and really exciting uh, stuff going on here as the, well. The thing about a science center is that if we're going to stay current, we have to keep redoing our exhibits. 20-year-old exhibit on technology is not very current, not what people want to see. So right. uh, so we have to keep redoing doing things. And as, as scientific advances develop, we have to do those. And as the field advances, we got to keep up on it. Right. And that's one of the things we're doing here in the Air and Space Center as well, is that we are, we're not just focusing on the past, the space shuttle, some people might say is the past, or the Apollo, Mercury, and Gemini, but we've also got... We'll have a SpaceX Dragon. We're going to have an electron rocket. It's a totally 3D-printed rocket built mm-hmm. here in Long Beach. Um, and so we're looking forward at a lot of the new advances in air and space as well. But I think one of the things about the Science Center and museums in general is just how they can inspire the next generation. That's, that really is what we're about is inspiration and, and motivating uh, people of all ages to want to learn science, to understand science. and. Mm-hmm. And particularly young people to think about studying science and going into science and engineering fields. And it's, it's that inspiration that comes from seeing what we can create and, and beginning to understand that incredibly complex systems to go into space, for example. But it's understandable when you start putting it together. And also there's so much more to do so right. that a young person could say, I could be working on that. Yeah, and that's, to me, that's a really important part that's as well. very important. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking some time and spending with us. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you. So just to make uh, make everyone uh, aware or clear what this is, is it, you know, when you see the space shuttle on the, or when you did see the space shuttle on the launch pad, it's obviously standing up vertically. Uh, there are a number of components, number of uh, pieces of the craft and the, the supporting equipment that, that hold it up and so forth. So when they assemble all these in a vertical position, uh, when NASA does, that's called stacking the shuttle. Of course, they also stack more conventional-looking rockets uh, spacecraft as well. It's a process of building it up vertically. And so that's what the museum has done here. Now, uh, you know, Micah, as you know, and David also, of course, uh, at the Air and Space Museum, Udvarhazi Air and Space Museum, you know, we see a, a shuttle there displayed as they most often are, which is in a horizontal position. Obviously, that's a much easier kind of position to uh, bring a space shuttle in and you know, set it up for def- uh, for the display. Uh, stacking it is giving you the sort of realistic view of what this looked like on the launch pad. And so the California Science Center is is the only one that has performed this actual vertical stack. And that was why they won that was why they won the shuttle. Each of the uh, winning museums that got a shuttle had a um, a primary mission, and California was the one that agreed to put it in a stack, which is the the shuttle itself, the two solid rocket boosters, and the um, external tank in the vertical position. Um, there is actually down at Houston. Um, at the Johnson Space Center, they actually now put one of the mock-ups on top of the 747 that they received. So um, I think that's I think she's America. Um, and then, of course, the the shuttle of record, of course, is is Discovery at the Smithsonian. Um, Enterprise was then moved to the Intrepid in New York. Um, and last but not least, Kennedy Space Center has um, the the fourth one. But each one was to present it in a different aspect, and California agreed to do it as a pre-launch um, stack, which is, if anyone has ever had the option of seeing a shuttle, it was it was really impressive being um, vertical. And think about the building that they usually do this in is the Vehicle Assembly Building at Kennedy Space Center, and that's probably one of the tallest buildings in the world, which is just a giant open space to hang this stuff. Um, so the fact that they're doing this in the middle of downtown Los Angeles is pretty impressive. So we'll look forward to seeing the exhibit. They still have a lot of work to do to get it set up and before it's open to the public. But uh, when it is, I think it'll be one of those uh, you know, must-see destinations for sure. What's up with the geeks? Let's see. Micah, have something for us? Yeah. Um, about a week or so ago, one of our listeners, Stephen Ivey, who flies the uh, Embraer Phenom for one of the big charter operators, he was, uh, gave me a, sent me a quick text and said, Hey, I'm in Portland for an hour, uh, picking up a client. Uh, do you have time to drop by? And I did. Oh. Uh, and it was great to see him. I hadn't seen him for several years and, uh, he, he's doing wonderful. He really enjoys the show. And I got a chance to tour a, a Phenom, which was a lot smaller than I thought. You know, you can't quite stand up on this twin jet. Um, but, uh, it's, um, it was just a, a lot of fun to see and to see the cockpit, which is very tight. Uh, but it flies with a G1000, uh, of all things. And, uh, uh, but it was great to see Steven. It was great to see the, the aircraft and, uh, had a lot of fun. I think, uh, we got a picture of me and Steven together. I was on my way to physical therapy. It was so last minute. So there I am in a, you know, my sweatshirt, my sweatpants, but, uh, <laughs> Steven's looking rather dapper. <laughs> he does. He's got a tie on and everything. And the, yeah. And a leather flight jacket, you know? Yeah. So we'll, we'll put this, uh, put this photo in the show notes. Uh, yeah. It's, it's always fun, uh, to, uh, to meet you all listening. Uh, when the opportunity uh, comes up, you know, sometimes, and I've run across this at, uh, at Sun and Fun and at Oshkosh and, you know, other places, other events, other aviation events is that, 
you know, sometimes people are uh, kind of reluctant to you know, walk up and say, you know, hi, I listen to Airplane Geeks or The Journey is a Reward or, you know, what have you, um, Aviation News Talk podcast, uh, and just introduce yourselves, say hello. But, uh, you know, do it. even if we look busy, because I know I, I tend to always like look busy even, you know, and unapproachable sometimes, but uh, don't let that stop you if you're. Do you have a, a, a favorite or, or strangest meeting of someone in, in your travels that, that recognized you or came up to you from the airplane geeks? Uh, I can speculate because I'm not sure. I was traveling. And this was uh, a few years ago. And I had stopped at some kind of like little diners, small restaurant, small, you know, kind of family style, you know, country country restaurant and I finished eating, you know, I was by myself and I finished eating and I asked the, in this case, the waitress for, for the check. And she said, Oh, it, it's already covered. And I said, what? <laughs> it's, what do you mean it's already covered? And she said, one, one of the other uh, customers wanted to pay your, your bill. Well, who was it? I said, yeah, she said, well, they wanted to remain anonymous. So the only thing I could think of was that somebody recognized me but didn't want to publicly introduce themselves or anything. I don't know. Maybe it was just some random act of kindness. But uh, if it was a listener, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, it, it really motivated me to uh, pay it forward and do the same for someone, someone who I didn't recognize, obviously, but you know, someone who looked like um, you know they, they would enjoy the gesture. It, it had this kind of nice you know, human element to it that, uh, I don't know, I just always remembered. What about you, David? Have you ever had an experience like that where somebody recognized you that you, you just didn't expect? Uh, well, um, actually, it's kind of funny because um, I guess the, the most weird one was um, I was at a Doctor Who convention out on Long, Long Island Who. It was the weekend I got engaged to Amber. Um but we had a person come up and asked if I was David Vanderhoof. And I said, yes. And he goes, well, I was at the museum yesterday and you weren't there. I said, well, because I was coming here. And he was a listener as well as a Doctor Who fan. So that was kind of unique that you just, it was sort of multiple fandoms coming together. And, you know, one of those things where you sort of, you get sort of out of sorts because you're in one sort of mental state and then having someone else come in at another mental state, you know, another fandom, it's sort of, they clash and it's sort of like, okay, where am I? So, um, and, and of course, anybody who comes into the museum, I, I'm always appreciative of, and, you know, I, I will, I, I will give a shout out to um, my two favorite people, which is Emma and Kurt, um, who are, you know, were were very funny that you know they started coming to the museum, and um, Kurt actually flies for a major airline, flies um, Airbuses, and um, Emma was a flight attendant, and Emma discovered the museum with their little son Holden, and and Kurt goes, oh. That's near us because there's this guy on his podcast I listen to <laughs> who um, works there. So they've become they've become great friends to Amber and I and and great supporters of the museum to the point where they knew I wasn't feeling so well and I they gave me a very generous Lego set. So I I, I wow. still owe them major thanks for that. I haven't built it yet. Um, it, it was definitely not something I expected. So it was um, very nice. It happens to be the Concord. Oh, really? A Lego Concord? This is one of those big sets that's going to take days to build. Yeah, it, I mean, we're it, it's on the bucket list to finish after we finish our our, our museum, um, which is what we're currently working on. So, uh, but but yes, shout out to to Emma and Kurt. And Holden and and the little one that's going to be arriving shortly. So. Oh, nice! Um, but yeah, it it is kind of cool when you get to meet people. Um, and again, to our listeners, sometimes you sort of get distracted when someone comes up and introduces yourself, and you're not in a environment where you, you'd be thinking that would be happening. So you know, sometimes it's kind of 
awkward and strange until you get a reset, at least in my opinion, you know, like I said, having someone come up and want to talk about airplane geeks at a Doctor Who convention was sort of a, like a whiplash <laughs> mental yeah, yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it is, I mean, so yeah, we do it definitely always appreciate everything anybody does and, and you know, the efforts people make to to see us and come see us and, and, and that. So, um, yeah, it's just sometimes we're a little distracted by other things. So, yeah. Yeah. Micah, you've been recognized several times, I think. Yeah. There, there, there were, there are two that come to mind. One where I was sort of in, in the right space for it. And I, and, and it didn't really surprise. It did surprise me, but I was ready to, to talk. And I was at the, the, the Sanford airport, uh, and I was just finishing up an interview with, uh, Riley Spidell. Remember the 16 year old glider pilot that flew across the country? Mm. And, uh, and I'm walking through the FBO, uh, coming back, ready to leave. And everything was packed up. Nobody really, you know, saw me interviewing her or anything. And somebody said, you're Micah, aren't you? And I said, <laughs> well, yeah. She says, how did, how did you know? Well, I recognized your voice. Said, oh, <laughs> that was, yeah. that was very, very cool. But the other one, um, back when I was on the radio hosting a radio show on, on NPR with singer songwriters. And I also was part-time working at LL Bean, uh, which is a big store up here in Maine. And it was back in the days when it was just a, a great store, you know, guaranteed returns, guaranteed satisfaction, always take care of the customer. And I'm behind the register and, you know, people are lined up and it's, I can't remember, you know, always crazy busy. And somebody comes up and, um, and says to me, you're Micah. And I said, <laughs> Well, yeah. He says, I'm Bill Morrissey. Now, Bill Morrissey has since passed, but he was an incredible singer, songwriter, incredibly well-known, amazingly talented. And I said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. He says, no, it's really nice to meet you. I've wanted to meet you for a long time, <laughs> which was just great. We ended up becoming very good friends, and uh, it was very, very special. Speaking of special, today – as we record this, is kind of a special day, isn't it? It is. It's Brian's birthday, the creator and uh, and producer of the Journey is the Reward podcast, the former associate producer here, and our good friend Brian is having his birthday today. And so happy birthday, Brian. Absolutely. Happy birthday. All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to wrap this up, a little bit of a short episode. We want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Of course, uh, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com and the uh, direct link to the show notes for this episode, you can find those at airplanegeeks.com slash 787. That's the episode number. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. We have a Slack listener team and uh, we also have a Discord server running and we have little communities there uh, that talk about well, aviation, but also lots of other things. And if you'd like uh, an invitation to either or both our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com and we'll, uh, we'll tell you how to get in. All right. So let's tell everybody where they can, uh, where they can find us or, or get a hold of us. And Micah, we'll start with you. Well, I'm still on Twitter, and you can find me there on Maine Fly, M-A-I-N-E, the state of Maine. Fly, let's go fly, Maine Fly on Twitter. I'm also on um, Mastodon, and uh, what's uh, what's the, what's the other one that, uh, that that's been popular these days? Blue Sky. I'm I'm also there under the same ID. I don't check there too often, but mostly you can find me with uh, with the birthday boy, with Brian Coleman on the Journey Is the Reward podcast. We're having a good time doing that. Um, I think it's this coming a week from the day we're recording, a week from the day that this is released, that following Monday, we should have a new show out with one of the directors of the Yankee Air Museum. And, oh, wow. uh, uh, I think that's coming out then, and it should be a lot of fun. Cool. All right. And David Vanderhoof, how do people track you down? You can find me at the American Helicopter Museum, uh, and of course... I will, just to give everyone the heads up, uh, you'll be able to start seeing me on YouTube shortly. We're going to come up with a video. I'm going to be doing a video history series. And uh, we will have our new speaker series um, on March 21st, uh, which will be um, 
Charles Morgan Evans, uh, and he will be talking about helicopter heroin for uh, Women's History Month. If you don't know anything about the Whirly Girls, this will be an interesting story about a woman nurse who became a helicopter pilot, and uh, she was French and flew uh, helicopter rescue missions during the French portion of the Vietnam War and then went on to um, become famous as a uh, woman helicopter aviator. So we'll be talking about that. Cool. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, lots of good stuff. And the video uh, series is that that's associated with the uh, with the museum. Yep, you'll have it. You'll, you'll it'll be you can go to helicoptermuseum.org which is the website and then we'll we'll have links to our Facebook page and our Instagram, etc. So, okay. Is there a membership link there too? Yes, there is. I just renewed my membership. Well, it's been about a month now, I guess, but uh, yeah, happy to support the museum. All right. And let's see, as for myself, uh, well, you can find me on our Slack listener team that I mentioned and uh, Discord server as well. Uh, also, a little bit on Mastodon, trying to get back into that a little bit more. A uh, few other places uh, you can uh, visit my uh, sort of simple vanity page at 30,000feet.com. That's that's all words spelled out. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. See you real soon. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. And thanks for listening. Rob didn't. Rob didn't show up. Yeah. So, really? So. You you just noticed that, huh? <laughs> yeah. Rob didn't make it, unfortunately. As he never has anything to say anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, we love Rob.